Now, I don't know if you know, but I don't think it's very difficult to draw a crowd. As a matter of fact, I think my wife and my kids are definitely afraid, deathly afraid, that by some grand act of silliness will draw enough of a crowd to drive my poor introvert family into an early grave. I sincerely believe that out on the street, especially in crowds, they're on their tiptoes waiting for me to sing at the top of my lungs or do ape impersonations or to take the hordes of people around me and try to organize them into groups of 30 to march down the street. I have until now never done that. Right, Sharon? Right. Yeah, <laughs> there's always a first time. But I have been practicing in elevators. I have been chatting with all the people in the elevators with Sharon with me sometimes, acting like I am the elevator operator. That doesn't go over all that well. So how does one draw a crowd? There have been many attempts to do so in the days past, and I have some pictures of folks uh, who were good at drawing crowds. Here is the first one. Oh, that's not it. There's the first one there. Snake oil salesman. Comes into a town, and he calls out that he has this marvelous elixir that will heal all of your difficulties, all of your diseases, give you mental prowess, and even help you not to have burps anymore. This stuff is made of such good stuff as coal tar and alcohol and herbs oh, and more alcohol and does absolutely nothing. But people come from miles around to the old towns to see this snake oil salesman. Or how about this one, the second picture? We come to Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park in London. And there anybody can get up on a soapbox or on a ladder and proclaim what they want to talk about for 10 minutes or so. Now, they will not draw a crowd like this. People will come in their fives and tens to listen, not in their hundreds or thousands. But you'll still draw a crowd. Here's the third picture. Magic always enthralls people. The mystery of the way that things can be done with sleight of hand make people gasp and men go, wow. This is a picture of David Blaine. He's one musician who takes his act to the street and he draws large numbers of folks by doing card tricks and sleight of hand so that they will come in large numbers to see his feats of endurance living in a block of ice or hanging from a crane trying to escape from the locked box. Now, this fourth guy, I am certain that you've seen somewhere. Do you know who this guy is? Shamlau. Vince. Vince Offer. Vince from Shamlau. This type is seen on TV and is noted for how at carnivals or at trade shows or the P&E, he is a non-stop chatterbox about the product he is trying to hustle. And he draws a crowd to see the demonstrations of his product. From Vegematics, to Ginsu knives, to Miracle Bullets, 
to Gotham steel fry pans, and, of course, the Shamwell. A crowd of vaguely gullible people are drawn to the demonstration area to be relieved of their money for an overpriced, underqualified piece of goods. And the people keep coming. Now, I'm sure you're wondering where this message is going, but we've got to take a moment to go back and look at a few things that have been talked about in the recent past. Now, Pastor West has been leading us to consider the working of the pioneer church that is pictured in the book of Acts. He mentioned that there was a small blue-collar group of 11 disciples plus a couple dozen other followers who had to stand up to and resist and grow the church of Jesus Christ based on Jesus' commands found in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Matthew chapter 28 said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Or Acts chapter 1. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. To this, of course, is added the power, pardon me, to this, of course, this threat that they were facing in order to try to grow was added the power of the Jewish leaders who hated the way. So you had the Roman Empire, you had the people around them, you had the Jewish leaders who hated the way, and they were to go out and develop this church and be disciples and call more people to Christ. And Jesus had just been crucified two or three months before. The odds of their success in this endeavor was minuscule at the very best. However, as we find out, this little Jewish sect became the official religion of the Roman Empire and even today works in the hearts and lives of hundreds of millions of people across the world, including us. Some 2,000 years later, transformed to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. As Pastor asked on that first Sunday of our study, how did they do it? What's their secret? And how can we, how can I live in the impossible odds being faced right now in this God-despising world that we live in in 2017? We found that God gave the disciples real power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think Pastor called it a superpower. Superpower. But the power was to witness testify to what Jesus Christ was and is and was doing and is doing. All the mighty power of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus and exercised by the disciples beginning at Pentecost was for the sole purpose of empowering witness, validating the message of salvation and drawing attention not to the display of power but to the Lord Jesus Christ for whom and through whom it flowed by the Holy Spirit to the te first testifiers to his name. After the amazing Acts, events of Acts chapter 2, where the Jewish travelers to Pentecost heard the message in their own home languages through the power of the Spirit of God working in the lives of the disciples of Jesus, they heard about the fulfilling of the Old Testament prophecy of Joel 
Acts chapter 2 quoted this. And afterwards I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. But before the coming of the great and terrible, dreadful day of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That Pentecost day must have been an incredible day. You see those people coming out of that room after you hear the jet plane roar of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then you see these people coming out and speaking about the message of who Jesus is and everybody who listens can hear what they're saying in their home language from Spain to Persia, across North Africa, the entire world of that day, of that known world, could hear the message that they were preaching. What powerful preaching that Peter brought up as he was the one who led them to proclaim what God was doing. I love Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. At the end of this powerful message that Peter is proclaiming regarding the link between what is happening to them and this Jesus who was crucified and rose again, he says at the end, all of you who are Jews who say you're part of the people of God, notice this. This one, Jesus, whom you crucified, is both the master of all that there is and the anointed one of God, Lord and Christ. That proclamation caused people to beg to hear what they could do about their problem. Repent and be baptized, Peter said. And that day, 3,000 came to know and love Jesus Christ. We are excited about the fact that there are six or seven across the course of the last number of months who are coming to faith in Christ. Can you imagine if there was 3,000 who had their hearts changed? It must have been something else. Anyway, as you read on in chapter 2, you notice that life settled down for the believers to a wonderful routine of teaching and prayer and the breaking of bread together. Miracles were done, but sharing of goods and caring for others and visiting each other were common events. God was praised and all the people, all the Jews of Jerusalem, held the Christians in high esteem. Daily, folks were being added to this group. In the normal course of events, God was working. In this amazing body of Christ. Now, in the midst of this new normal come the events of chapter 3. Out of the normal life of the new church, God empowers the church again to do miracles. And miracles for a particular purpose. Now, if you have your Bibles open, please make sure you look again at Acts chapter 3. 
the passage that we read together. Remember, you'll find it on page 772 in your brown pew Bibles. Now, this morning, I want us to notice three things from Acts chapter 3 about what the Lord Jesus does by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. The points are the miracle grabs attention. The Messiah is proclaimed, and the message of restoration is given. So, let's look at this passage together. We're going to start at verses 1 to 10. The miracle grabs attention. This is why I talked about those four attention grabbers, those people who are drawing a crowd. So in case you thought that had no relationship to the message, it does here. Okay, so don't... So don't let it worry you, it does fit. Yes, even Vince fits my message. Now, in the new normal, in verses 1 to 10, the disciples carry on their lives as usual. In this case, Peter and John head up to the temple for late afternoon prayer time, 3 o'clock. Of course, many hundreds, if not thousands, are heading in with them, all to carry out the pious worship of Yahweh. This was also normal. The folks... This was also normal, that people would go to the temple to pray. Something else was normal. There was a, um, a tradition that pious people would give to those who were needy a, um, an alms, uh, a gift of money, a penny or a, or a farthing or a mite or whatever it was in order to help them survive. And so crippled people... People who were struggling would be sitting at the gates as you were going into the courts of the temple. They'd be sitting there waiting to receive their alms. People who were unable to care for themselves or crippled uh, sought of the pious a few coins to aid in their survival. It was appropriate worship to give to these people some of your money. One of these beggars was a man who was born crippled. And in his 40 years of life, he had never been able to walk. He had legs very much like Rick Hansen. You could bind them together, they were of no use. Or Johnny Erickson Tata. Or those, many of those men who play sledge hockey, whose legs are just there, but really form no purpose. The legs did not work, and they had never worked in the life of this man. Legs are totally useless appendage. Better off wrapped up or tucked out of the way because they're not able to do anything except be in the way. Evidence of just how crippled this man is is shown by the fact that his friends had to daily carry him and place him at the gate. So he'd be in the vicinity of temple goers. As Peter and John are heading into the temple, they meet the call of the beggar. Alms for the poor and needy. Alms for the poor and needy. He'd been shouting that all day. At the call, Peter and then John turn around and they both look at this man. And Peter says, look at us. Now, if you're a beggar and you've been getting money from people and some people turn to you while you're crying out, alms for the poor and needy, and they say, look at us, where do you expect? 
I'm going to get some money. I'm going to be given some money, right? And probably a lot, because there was a tradition amongst the Pharisees often to proclaim, like it says in Matthew 6, the giving of alms. Rabbi Hillel has just given 45 denarii. There was some of that. And so he thought a big thing is coming. Wow. Oh, good. Something valuable is coming. And then Peter said something amazing. Look at the passage, if you would, and look at verse number six. By the way, if you were of a certain age and been involved in church, there was a ditty that we sang that would drive this story deep into your mind. I'm not allowed to sing it. My wife said, you will not sing that ditty at church. But it was there and you wouldn't forget it for anything. And Peter said this, silver and gold I do not have. There goes my 45 denarii. But what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. What? And then Peter takes the man by his right hand and he stands him up. And as he is standing him up, his legs grow muscles and his feet and his ankles become strong and flexible. All of the machinations that have to go on in his mind for balance begin to take hold and the coordination that have to happen in your legs set up. And the feet that have to bear the weight of all of that body, as emaciated as it might be, are suddenly prepared. And he takes him by the hand and he stands up and he walks. By the way, Dr. Luke, who was writing this, he wrote both the book of Acts and the book of Luke. He finds this fascinating. He finds both what happened to the cripple, so he describes it somewhat as being interesting, and he describes the fact that he was walking four different times. This man was walking. This man was walking. He was walking. He was walking. It's absolutely incredible. But he wasn't just walking. But he was walking and he was jumping and he was praising God. What a miracle. What an amazing deliverance. Incredible. Praise the Lord. This man who was a cripple can now walk. The hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who saw this. They saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is remarkable. This is incredible. This is, by the way, no unverifiable miracle like the ones a prosperity gospel teachers do. This is not a Benny Hinn miracle or a Kenneth Copeland miracle, or a Morris Cirillo miracle. This is no huckster trick like Oral Roberts or Peter Popoff. If I'm using names and that bugs you, I'm sorry. These people are, I believe, fraudulent. This is the healing of a known cripple that has been crippled since birth, 
that almost all the worshipers would recognize and many had given alms to in times past. They would undoubtedly draw a crowd and the beggar, partially unsure of whether the cure would go on or that he really could walk, held on to the disciples for dear life. So he'd walk and he'd leap and he'd praise God and then he'd hold on to the disciples. That would fit, right? 40 years of no walk and then being able to walk and he's walking and is this going to last? Am I sure I know what I'm doing here? What's very important in this is compared to the men I just mentioned. Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Morris Cirillo, Oral Roberts, Peter Popoff, is that these healers kept deflecting the credit. Deflecting the credit. Certainly an amazing thing had happened. But what does it say in verse number 7? In the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter becomes even more specific when the crowd starts to gather around. Look at verses 12 and 13, just down a little bit. When Peter saw this, that is, the people gathering around in Solomon's colonnade, He said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, piety, whatever you want to use the word there, we had made this man walk, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. This man who was crippled and now can walk is walking for no other reason than that Yahweh that you worship has glorified his son Jesus, and through Jesus, he has been raised to walk for the first time. Hey, we didn't do this ourselves. God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did this. God did this to glorify his servant Jesus. The whole of this remarkable event, the activity that drew all of you to this part of the temple court is an event that is to draw attention to Jesus. Here is the event that proves the rule. When Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 said, and you shall receive power you shall be my witnesses, this is part of what he meant. The supernatural power of God, mediated through the work of the Holy Spirit, is carried out specifically for the glorification of and praise of Jesus, the Son of God and our Messiah, Savior. I'll say that again. The supernatural power of God, mediated or directed through the work of the Holy Spirit, is carried out specifically for the glory of and praise of Jesus, the Son of God, and our Messiah, Savior. That man is healed because Peter wanted to draw a crowd to point out Jesus. Wasn't selling Shamwell. Wasn't that speaker's corner. Wasn't trying to do magic tricks. Wasn't trying to sell that snake oil. He wanted people to see, they wanted people to see Jesus and recognize him for who he was. So a miracle took place. Are you concerned that you will be weak 
and unable to have power to be an effective witness for Jesus? Is that a concern of yours? It's a concern of mine. I've been a Christian for 50 years and it scares me to death to talk to folks about Christ. This does not promise you that you get to have miracles done in order for you to be a testimony for Jesus. I mean miracles like this. There are miracles going to be done, but not this. This is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. But you will have, just like Peter and John had, the power to witness for God and for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The early church was convinced that in the humdrum of their daily lives, the new normal of life after Acts chapter 2, the Lord had sent a power to enable witness like never before. Here, that power was a healing miracle. The Lord had sent a power to enable witness like never before. In other circumstances, it could be anything from opening up opportunities where you've never had them before to speak about Jesus, to using the love that you show to other Christians or to non-Christians as a softener that melts the hearts before the gospel of God through Jesus Christ is brought to them. What they believed is what's true for us too. God could be doing the same kinds of things. Or something as simple as getting the courage to going to your downstairs neighbor's cannon barb and mentioning to them that you love Jesus. And I've not done that yet, and I've been there for a year. I want to figure out how to do that. Look at verse 16, if you would. This is a summing up of what was going on with the miracle. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So how did this happen? Well, we know what happened in order to draw people's attention to Jesus. But how did it happen? Trusting Jesus. Having faith in Jesus. And more than that, he gave the faith to trust him so that he could do this work, to bring this man to wholeness as he was. Not only the power to witness that comes from the Spirit, but the power to have faith as well. Faith in the character and the worth and the authority of Jesus as the God-man is what has worked this great healing in this man. Jesus has done it. Jesus has given the faith and Jesus completely heals and you have seen it. Now, if anything, it's going to draw a crowd. This is going to be it. And it's all in the name of And by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the servant of God. So the miracle draws a crowd. The miracle comes because of faith in Jesus Christ. When the crowd comes around, in verses 13 to 16, you'll notice that Peter and John take opportunity to proclaim some very important things. They're going to talk first of all about the Messiah, And then they're going to bring a message to challenge the hearts of these Jewish 
people. By the way, before you get to Acts chapter 10, the church believed that the gospel was for the Jews. And you see that in the last verse of this passage. You look at verse 26. And so all the discussion is going to be how God is going to work amongst the Jews. When Acts chapter 10 comes, when the sheet is left down from heaven, and God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Oh, I can't. I never eat unclean food. It was a challenge to him to appreciate the Gentiles. And I don't know if you know, but I think everybody who is here is not Jewish, right? Well, maybe you are Jewish. But anyhow, those of us who are not Jewish get to be part of this story as we look at it later on because God included us in the gospel. I have a Jewish friend who sort of teases me and says, yeah, yeah, we spread out the gospel to you too, but we were there first. Braggart. <laughs> anyway, Acts chapter 2, verse, chapter 3, pardon me, verses 13 to 16. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Now, we've already spent some time on the concept of the miracle really drawing folks' attention to Jesus Christ as the power behind what had taken place. In verses 13 to 16, Peter highlights this in a very fulsome manner, but with a punch. And just to just help us understand who is the focus of this activity. Now, Peter is saying, in effect, now a couple of months ago, a few months ago, this man was in your midst. And this miracle that you saw, God glorified his servant. But, and this is where he starts to land the body punches. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, that Gentile leader who was so nasty he killed the Galileans in the temple. And that nasty leader had decided to let Jesus go. You wouldn't let him do it. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be released to you, Barabbas. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of all these things. We can't let you off the hook. You've come here to see what is going on. You've seen a miracle done in the name and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is who he is. And this is what you have done. It's as though the finger of condemnation kept pointing and pointing and pointing. God did this, but you disowned him. God had his holy and righteous one. But you let Pilate kill him. Actually, you demanded that Pilate kill him. God had the author of life. And you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. You find the healing of the beggar remarkable and laudable, but you disown the servant of God, the holy and righteous one, and the author of life. Do you understand what you have done? 
More than that, God raised him from the dead, and we saw both what you did by disowning Jesus and what God did in declaring Jesus powerful by that resurrection, as Romans 1 tells us. By the way, by extension, we can't just say, those Jews, those Jews in 30 AD did that. In a real sense, we were there. And if those Jews were all gone, and all the Pharisees were all gone, we would have condemned him in the same way. And disowned him in the same way. God's servant, we disown him. The holy and righteous one, we we disown him. The author of life, kill him. We would have done the same thing. What do you have to say now? Indeed, what does a convicted soul have to say in the face of condemnation like this? They had the Messiah, the Christ of God, right in front of them, and they turned, as it were, their faces from him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This Messiah, whom they saw, they disowned. You disowned him despite who he was and is, God's servant, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. We witnessed him. It is his power that is at work here. This is part of why I drew your attention to Jesus, to tell you what you did. This is part of why God exercised his power to make you come running, to tell you what happened. And by the way, when Peter is pointing the finger at the others and saying, you disown, you did, he's pointing a finger at himself as he himself disowned Jesus on that night. He disowned not only the man who was the teacher of Galilee, but his own master, his own teacher, his own Lord, his own friend that he had spent three years with and promised not to ever disown. And it was because of the terrible onslaught of a servant girl and her questions on the night of Jesus' betrayal. So the finger of accusation pointed out But the finger of accusation pointed in to. So what can they say? I don't believe you. What do you do with this man then? If he is as powerful as Peter says he is, if this miracle is based on faith in the name of Jesus, I must trust him. There's only one thing you can say. I am undone. I need a Savior. If you've never trusted Jesus, what can you say to this? How do you deal with the drumbeat of condemnation that Peter lays on the heads of the Jews and is laying on your head if you've never trusted Jesus Christ? Just like those Jews This powerful one, this amazing one, this one from God is your responsibility. I'm thankful, however, not only did uh, the crowd come in order to hear about the Messiah whom they disowned, but there was a message, a message of reconciliation in verses 17 to 20. It's the longest part of this passage. Peter was not willing to leave 
his fellow Jews in a state of hopelessness. What do I do? And say nothing to them. He was not willing to leave them in a place where they had no hope of hopelessness. Peter comes to them finally with a message of hope. Across the Old Testament, sacrifice for sin and forgiveness from sin was available for those who acted in ignorance as opposed to those who acted presumptuously. For those who acted in ignorance, forgiveness was possible. There's something very awful takes place in the book of Luke chapter 23. It's the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is lying on the ground about to take the nails into his hands and his feet and to be attached to that cross, Jesus points to this Old Testament concept. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're acting in ignorance. Ignorance regarding who they're killing and ignorance regarding the level of rebellion against God that they are expressing. This recognition of the blindness of people to what exactly they were agreeing to made the call of the Jews of Jerusalem possible and in many cases profitable. As we begin this last part of the passage, Peter recognizes their ignorance, both the people and their leaders. He says this in verse 17, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. He points out that Jesus, what Jesus faced was the plan of the Father and foretold in the prophets. Verse 18, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer and, of course, die. On this basis, then, a path is open to you by faith in the name of Jesus. Faith in the name of Jesus healed this man who was a cripple. Now, faith in the name of Jesus is going to restore you. And this is the purpose of why Peter and John were able to carry out this miracle. Verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. In chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter on Pentecost says something similar. So the echo should be ringing in their ears. We heard this before. At that point, Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call the call to repentance and belief in Jesus has been laid before them before. In this less formal setting amongst Jerusalem Jews, the call rings out again. Repent and trust Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. God will take the burden of your sin that is too heavy for you to bear and he will wipe it out. I don't think I know of many places in Scripture that talks about forgiveness quite that way. Your sins will be wiped out. Do you like that idea, by the way? When you, when you see your sin for what it is, and you cry out to God for mercy, he takes that whole record, and it's as though not only is there a washcloth, he takes the whole chart, 
and he blows it up. It's gone. All of the record is gone. He totally forgives you. And like the rest of the disciples, not only will he forgive you, he'll give you the power of the Spirit, and he will give you the power to witness. And he will carry out his promises for you. Verse 19 also talks about one of those promises. If you're Jewish, you have been sitting under the burden of being in captivity to all kinds of people, Assyrians and Babylonians and Medes and Persians and Greeks and Romans. And even the Maccabees weren't such great Jewish leaders. And you're tired of it. And you're, and you're wiped out from it. Second part of verse 19 says, a refreshment's coming. The times of refreshing will come from the Lord. As Peter is speaking to the Jews of Jerusalem, he offers them refreshment from the Lord, a reset, a renewal of relationship, and the hand of graciousness that God has offered so often in his promises to Israel is in view here. Refreshment is coming. As it says in Psalm 20, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then the third thing, verses 20 to 26, in these last verses, uh, we are told about the promises from the Old Testament of this one who would come, this one who would allow Israel to become uh, the blessing for all the nations of the earth. Moses said, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. The call was to these Jews to trust and rely, to believe in and to have faith in God's Messiah. This promise is not just for the Jews. If you read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, you know that not all Israel is Israel, and there are others as well. Again, the Gentiles. Not only Jews by birth, but Jews and Gentiles who can heed the call of this narrative and trust Jesus. This message is for you. This message is for you. This message is for you, all of us. So the message he preached was one of repentance and refreshment and reconciliation. What an amazing day that Dr. Luke had to record for us in Acts chapter 3, eh? It's a normal time to go and pray and turns into a miracle-filled afternoon of healing of the body and of the soul. And in the case of many, they're added to the church because they're being saved. Those who rushed to the place in the temple where Peter and John were, the newly healed cripple was, they got to see what faith in Jesus Christ was about regarding him and regarding their own hearts. It was through faith in the name or the character of Jesus that healed that born crippled man. It would be faith in Jesus Christ that would bring times of repentance and refreshment and restoration to the hearers and to us who will believe. The entire episode... And all the things that occurred were the result of the power that God had given through Christ to the Christian, the power to witness. 
But let's ask the question. Which one of these two is the greater miracle? The man born crippled who is able to stand on his feet and walk and jump and praise God? Or the hearts that turn in repentance and faith and trust Christ? They're both miracles, certainly. But let's go back and think about those pictures we saw at the very start for a moment. I want you to think that you are a snake oil salesman. Is it more important to you to draw a crowd of people around you or to sell some of that wonderful, lousy elixir? You want to sell the elixir, right? If you were to ask the speaker at Hyde Park if drawing a crowd was as important as having their thoughts heard, they'd most often say, I want to have my thoughts heard. If you were to ask Vince with his shamwell, whether having a crowd was the most important to him, he would say, no, selling the cloths are most important. I got a commission, you see. Now, the healing of the man was indeed a gracious gift from God and a marvelous indication of the work of the Spirit of God in the early church. But the purpose was to draw folks to hear about Savior Jesus and the greater miracles that can be had when we trust in him. The other night, Sharon and I were reading as we finish off our day in bed. We had the glow of the little lights on our Kindles glowing. Everything else was dark. Sharon came across a quotation that I thought perfectly fits to close our deliberations on Acts chapter 3 today. It's from a novel writer named Francine Rivers. She says this, Miracles are no guarantee faith will follow and are never more important than the message of salvation. Did you catch that? Miracles are no guarantee that faith will follow and are never more important than the message of salvation. The salvation of the lost is always a bigger miracle than any other. Both come by faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's pray.